The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education, and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now, here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome, everybody. This is not Mary Woods. Mary's taking a well-earned vacation this week, somewhere nice, I hope. This is Mark Green. I'm an addiction psychiatrist and the medical director at Westbridge. And today, I have Dan Potenza. Hi, Dan. Hi. Uh, With me to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and substance abuse in returning Iraqi and Afghanistan veterans. Dr. Potenza is currently a staff psychiatrist at the VA in Manchester, New Hampshire, and also assistant professor of psychiatry at Dartmouth Medical School. He's lectured nationally on topics of major mental illness, personality functioning, and more recently, post-traumatic stress disorder. Recently, he's been appointed by Governor Lynch to be a participant on the statewide legislative committee for studying post-traumatic stress disorder in returning Iraq war veterans. And in April 2008, he was an American Medical Association honoree at the annual Linda Saltzman Conference for work with post-traumatic stress disorder in the veterans. So, hi, Dan. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for having me today. You're welcome. So, let's start by just talking a little bit about what PTSD is. Sure. Um, and something about how what you're seeing at the moment in your work. Well, a lot of uh, listeners will probably have some understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder, but we'll we'll go through this in a way that uh, I think will be user-friendly to everybody. I mean, essentially, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD as it's often shorted, shorted to, is a disorder where someone is exposed to an event that um, is fairly horrific. And when that occurs, you can have a period of somewhat of a sustained helplessness. You're paralyzed, and you cannot really move. You can't think very well. And it ends up causing neurobiologic and psychologic changes in folks that experience that, which causes a number of other experiences afterward. Now, it is very interesting uh, that um, this PTSD, obviously you would know, occurs a lot in some of the patients that I currently treat. For the last three years, I've been over at the Manchester, New Hampshire Veterans Association Hospital and have been really exclusively um, treating uh, a lot of uh, young men and women who are returning from both the uh, Afghanistan, which is known as Operation Enduring Freedom, and the Iraqi War, uh, which is known as Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, for PTSD and associated other uh, events. The uh, interesting thing about that is that these are young men and women who come back with a lot of anxiety and hypervigilance and uh, with with poor sleeping, uh, 
something that we call an exaggerated startle response, where there is like a loud noise or a quick movement, they jump. And um, we associate these findings and these symptoms, if you will, to some of the experiences that they've had while deployed in uh, active uh, combat. So these veterans um, probably didn't have these symptoms before they went out, but they described them coming on afterwards, or perhaps some of them had some problems originally before they ever went. Well, that's always a, that's a very good question. The majority for sure have not, and we know that yeah. because all these young men and women get screened prior to uh, entry into the armed forces and then again prior to uh, deployment. And and so the, and go ahead. Uh, Dan, are they coming to you for screening because they have problems, they're presenting with problems, or um, as they come home, are the veterans getting screened um, for these problems? Well, here's that's a good question. Um, let me just give you, uh, for a second, Mark, the extent of what we're talking about. Mm. Just a couple of numbers, if that's all right. I mean, about one and a half million troops total have been deployed to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, that's an, a huge number. Amazing. We have known, it is amazing, since October 2001. And so it's before some of the bigger invasions that have occurred. But there's always been somewhat of a presence in the, the Middle East. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about it is that a lot of these young men and women, similar to the uh, returnees from Vietnam, started coming home after one or two deployments and having adjustment issues. Um, and the VA, which serves veterans as well as National Guard and reservists, began to screen them more for post-traumatic stress disorder and other associated illnesses, depression and traumatic brain injury. Everybody now, Mark, gets screened because it turns out that there was some of these young men and women coming back that we would miss some of the initial signs and symptoms of evolving post-traumatic stress disorder. And so now everybody gets screened, and it's turning out that fully about 20% of some of these men and women coming back nationally have uh, meet threshold criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. 20%? 20%. of 1.5 million? Well, uh, approximately, yes. Wow, this is yes. an enormous national problem. Well, it's a very big problem, and uh, for sure we're trying to uh, get a handle on it little by little because, like anything, the earlier you understand it and the earlier you begin to educate and treat it, much better outcome. And if I could say a few things about PTSD. Go ahead. Uh, well, you know, because I want the audience to understand some of what we're talking about. I mean, in this way, if you are in a traumatic experience, uh, and that traumatic experience by chance is severe enough, you're going to be starting to be looking for other potential traumatic experiences. This one snuck up on you. It's like, oh, you weren't looking close enough. You begin to start to evolve survival skills. If you are trained, as soldiers are trained, to go into combat, and you experience the training of always watching out, always looking, always scanning, always watching out for things, always looking for the enemy. And things do happen, like you have an IED explode or you end up getting into a firefight or getting ambushed. Many things start to, uh, a certain amount of reasoning starts to cement on you, these survival skills. 
that we begin to call hypervigilance. And these hypervigilance survival skills cause a lot of um, always watching out, always scanning, always looking, um, and they are remarkably good survival skills if you are in a red zone, uh, if you are in Iraq or if you're in Afghanistan. They don't do so well when you come back. And one of the issues when you come back to America, and one of the issues is with rapid transport and rapid uh, remobilizations uh, or demobilizations when these young men and women come back is that you could be walking the streets of Fallujah on a Tuesday and you're back in Main Street in Manchester, New Hampshire or Concord, New Hampshire or in Massachusetts on a Sunday. And we are trying to uh, help a lot of these young men and women adjust back and trying to loosen up these survival skills, these PTSD-type symptoms. Uh, with our treatments. So some people, so you're screening everybody, um, and when do you decide what kind of intensity of treatment is needed? Because it might just be, sounds like some people have these survival skills and they might need them loosened up over time and reintegrating back into um, regular civilian life. Um, and other people might need a lot more intensity. That is absolutely correct. I mean, and there is a whole spectrum and you picked up on one of the most complex issues now: how much treatment, for how long, at what you know, at what intensity. And um, it's very difficult to, when folks screen positive on our PTSD screens, how to fully interpret. Um, and when I say we screen, not just myself. Any time someone comes in, sees a primary care physician sees one, someone in our specialty clinics, uh, in audiology, uh, et cetera, and any of the other clinics that we have, we are constantly screening for this because we don't want to miss any of them because like any kind of treatment in healthcare, uh, proactivity really pays, the ability to catch something early. And so those that have very mild readjustment, if you will, who have, uh, um, I'll just say it this way, a touch of the phenomenon, just meeting criteria for PTSD, the, uh, it's much easier to reach out and, as you were, I'll use your words, readjust them, help them through education and uh, very particular types of um, psychotherapy to assist them in, in uh, getting back. Um, and in other times with folks who have a little bit more of that symptomatology, um, the adjustment takes longer. They're a little bit more involved, treatment involving um, some pharmacothera- or medications, pharmacotherapy we call that, and um, trying to exactly get medicines to somewhat assist with the symptoms that medicines can while you draw someone in closer to get them much more uh, adherent to some of the psychotherapies that allow them to... Um, really for themselves see that these are kinds of survival skills that don't work very well on Main Street. And I need to start to give them up. But people get really caught between a rock and a hard place. I mean, these are folks that needed these skills to survive. And I have had many veterans come to me and say, if I didn't have these skills this good, I wouldn't have made it back like this. We wouldn't be talking right now. Right. Uh, and and they will say, I know folks that didn't get this as so they've been well, trained to make it automatic response. Well, um, and, and, and then, 
You're, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're, you're getting right onto it. Go ahead. I, I won't interrupt you. Yeah, I mean, you're trained to make an automatic response, but then the exposure to the trauma um, um, causes your fear circuits to um, initiate an even more um, fear-driven response. Um, which probably combines with your training. Exactly uh, correct. Someone who's who's got very adept survival skills in the field, but you can't just loosen those up and get and drop those automatic behaviors once you're back on the streets of Manchester. Uh, it's very difficult to. And let me uh, just uh, add to what you just said. I mean, training, uh, you know, gets our our young men and women who are out there on the front lines protecting us. And I'll just make a little side note here. Uh, I've since becoming coming here. I've been absolutely devoted to treating these uh, young men and women, getting them a little bit better and readjusted. And if you ever think that you know our uh, young men and women um, have uh, uh, how do I say this that there isn't good in our young men and women, you come here for a day, and you'll see how good it is. We'll be back after the break. And more. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, this is Mark Green standing in for Mary. Hey, Dan, before the break, you were just talking about the automaticity of people's responses to their training and then exposure to combat trauma. So let's carry on from there. Absolutely. Well, training, military training in and of itself, 
gives you the idea of reacting very quickly to things, being almost instantaneous because you and the lives of your comrades depend on that, being very accurate with what you're doing, and being very protective of yourself. With repeated combat trauma and repeated deployments, some of that training metamorphosizes to much more reactivity. You become overly reactive to the situation, not only just responsive to it. And so you become faster with less accuracy, and you end up having a degree of hypervigilance that is very protective of you. Uh, it's a little bit overprotective, and it certainly far exceeds what you need once you get home. The issue is that, you know, we all, are, you know, as we think, as, uh, we all divide our thinking into kind of two different kinds of thinking, really. Our just everyday cognitive reasoning about things. We use our logic. But then we also have a kind of an emotional reasoning. We have a gut feeling about things. And so the we usually use a blend of both. We can think things through, but we use our emotional gut sometimes to help sort things out. Now, in post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly in these young men and women, it seems this emotional reasoning just gets more and more and more powerful. It begins to have you overly protect yourself all the time. And it sort of kind of wipes out this somewhat middle ground of reasoning, this middle path of both the cognitive and the emotional reasoning. And the emotional reasoning ends up having you do all kinds of things that are great if you're in a war zone, a little overly protective, but you do survive, but not good, like we talked about, if you are, um, you know, back at home uh, in Main Street and um, having some difficulties with that. And so you end up having great difficulty in assessing the importance and salience, if you will, of emotional information that you're confronted with on the street, and thus you have trouble sometimes selecting your appropriate behavior. So we'll get a lot of, I'll have my patients, and I tell them, you get pulled over, you call me. You know, you have that officer who pulls you over, call me so I can help you with this. Because one survival skill, if you're in Iraq, and now in Afghanistan especially, is to drive down the middle of the street. And... If you see garbage on the side of the road, if you see leaf piles on the side, you stay away from those. That could be an IED. And so you end up driving middle street and you drive like pretty fast. Wow. And so that doesn't go well if you're like driving down uh, Route 93 here between uh, New Hampshire and uh, Massachusetts. And um, a lot of times folks get pulled over. They explain as best they can that they're trying to not do these things. The officer usually calls me, and we've been very good about trying to sort out a number of these things. Overpasses are a big thing, too. Overpasses are a horrible risk if you are in a uh, war zone, if you're outside a base. Uh, they uh, Many bombs can get dropped from those overpasses. So, of course, if you're on a highway, uh, there's lots of overpasses, and you'll have our folks try to go slow and then speed underneath them. And so it's, uh, it's, quite, a, it's quite an issue. Now. Wow, yeah. See, you know, I, I really like the um, discussion of hot and cold cognition, yes. cold sort of logical thinking, Spock-like, and the hot emotion-filled automatic. And it sounds like when people emerge from training, they have a nice balance of that. They can respond quickly, um, but they're, they're also um, able to exert some logic and consideration. And over time, with the exposure, you lose that 
um, cold, the influence of the cold cognition and probably in part of your treatment, you're really emphasizing the regaining of that so people can think and put the brakes on the um, hot emotional driven memory. That's exactly what we do. I mean, and the way you said it, hot and cold cognitions, if you will, is pretty much right on. It's a great analogy for people listening to understand. There are areas of the brain that are more the hot areas, and they do control the emotional reasoning, and there are areas of the brain that are more the cold areas, if you will, and they control this cognitive reasoning and memory as well. And what happens is that we do try to enhance the cold areas or the cognitive, logical reasoning to integrate into the emotional reasoning to get a middle path. But there is a problem. The problem is this. If you do have this emotional reasoning and you rely on that emotional reasoning, you're caught between a rock and a hard place. You're caught between the anxiety and depression and feeling crazy, if you will, of following all that emotional reasoning or trying to go against it. And the anxiety related to going against those older survival skills is pretty intense. And so I'll get these uh, veterans that come in to see me and they say, I don't know what to do. I'm, right. Either way, I'm not good. And I always tell folks that what we're trying to do is assist, just like you had said, with increasing the cognitive reasoning to integrate into the emotional reasoning. And we have to help you tolerate the anxiety of you growing to who you really want to be again. And part of the entrainment, if you will, in getting folks to, to work on this is some of those statements that get uh, these young men and women to start to understand this is the process. Right, and that the anxiety that they're experiencing um, is part of the effort of resisting some automatic behaviors and relearning some more uh, some behaviors which are more appropriate to their current situation. Any of us would feel that anxiety, absolutely. Yeah. Um, hey, Dan, I, I want to ask a bit more about the consequences of sure. the PTSD for people um, that you're seeing, the range of things that you're seeing. You mentioned the driving problems. Um, and I hadn't thought of that underpasses, but it makes absolute sense. Um, but what are the consequences of this are you seeing? Well, I mean, if, if PTSD, and I will say something else too in, in terms of this, and depression, because there's a fair amount of depression as well, not as prominent as PTSD, um, go untreated or if they're undertreated. Yeah. Uh, for some of these uh, young men and women will sometimes not come to us. They'll go to various... Um, civilian or um, outside resources. And um, these are folks that definitely need vigorous treatment. But if, if they go untreated or undertreated, there is a cascading set of consequences like drug use and um, alcohol use and suicide and marital problems, unemployment. Um, and it, it's so common uh, to have all of these things that the ability for us to help them to readjust a family life, for example, you know, uh, you know, and this is especially true for the Reserve and National Guard veterans who um, they may have not been deployed as a unit per se. They may have been deployed somewhat separately. And so when they come back, they don't have their peers to talk to that much. And they don't go back to a base. They go back to their job you know, at the car wash or being the town manager or uh, being an accountant or et cetera, you know, and um, it's very hard for them 
to make such a huge transition. You know, it's stressful for the for workplaces. It's stressful for the family um, because when they're gone, obviously family members that are left at home have to assume all these different roles. Yeah. And yeah. A, a wife may have to assume much more uh, of the bill paying or uh, the managing of the other uh, parts of their family that when this, when uh, the person uh, who is deployed comes back, the soldier comes back, um, they have to kind of get back into those roles again. And sometimes the spouse is angry that they've been away. Um, and if this person has some... Uh, Survival skills are not matching very well. It can be kind of a very difficult time. Children are confused and angry because their parents return homes and, and they seem very different. Um, and sometimes the kids can start to act up a little bit and have kind of challenging behaviors in school, etc. And so there's all kinds of things that you look for. And those are the things you ask about. How are the kids doing? What's happening with this? You know, how are you and your missus kind of getting back together again? Um, and so there, there's... Those are a few of the issues. You know, when you were talking earlier, you mentioned that um, over the course of exposure to trauma, people get much more focused on protecting themselves. And when people first come out of training, when soldiers first come out of training, they're, they're thinking about protecting themselves, but also the group, the, the, uh, the armed services. Um, and I would imagine that when people with PTSD come back, um, they're much more focused on protection of self and perhaps less attuned to um, the protection of their family or of other people close to them. More, they might be more insular. But I wondered what this does to their combat, their, their ability to serve in the field as well. Well, that's a, that, that gets into a very complicated issue, of course, uh, because you, you're speaking to the fact that these are men and women that now, as a rule, serve multiple deployments. One year, you know, uh, two deployments, three deployments, and uh, I see folks that I treat that will come in and tell me, "Hey, listen, I have to, I got to see you," and I'll say, and I say, "Well, yeah, come in later tonight. You know, come in, I'll see you." And they come in, and I'll know, I know why they want to see me because they just got their orders, yeah. and they have to prepare. And the big question on their mind is, "How am I going to do this? I'm not going to let my country down. I'm not going to let my family down." And uh, how do I kind of do this? And it is difficult. Now, I cannot attend to any statistics, and I can't really tell you. I have treated folks who have had some symptoms, have gone and got redeployed and come back and talked to me about it, and they have, and this is anecdotal, of course. This is only a handful, uh, but uh, maybe 15, 20 um, uh, folks I've personally treated, and they have not done too badly. Um they still have, however, the huge adjustment and residual PTSD issues, but some of them told me, I'm more comfortable out there. I am more comfortable out there than I am at home. Those guys out there, they understand me. I have a common frame of reference to them. I come home and my wife and I don't, we can't mesh that way. She has no idea of the kinds of things I've gone through, and... As you get them described to you, uh, you're right. Uh, it is some pretty amazing, horrific things that go on. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine the family particularly wanting to sit down and hear those or, or share them um, with their usually husband. 
that's, that's horrific. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's very difficult to uh, have any kind of discussion that way, and as a rule, it usually does not happen. Okay, so more after the break. to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Hey, Jack, you got a sec? Yeah, sure, come on in. Yeah, I was wondering if you... Jack, your hair's on fire. Yeah, yeah, I know. I I just need to finish this sales report, and then I'll probably, I don't know, let me lie down for a bit. But I'm, I'm sure it'll go away. But the flames are getting bigger. Sh- shouldn't I... Your hair, there's so much fire. No, 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 I'll be fine. What can I help you with? Oh, dear. Well, at least we know the sprinkler system works. You wouldn't ignore this, so why ignore the signs of a stroke? If you or someone you know suddenly experiences numbness of the face, arm, or leg, or sudden trouble speaking, seeing, or walking, don't wait to get help. Call 911 right away, because time lost is brain lost. To find out more, visit www.strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE. This message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. So this is Mark Lee coming from Mary on vacation. Um, back to Dan Tenza talking about PTSD today. Um, so, Dan, a few more of these um, consequences. You're seeing a lot of how do you can you put some numbers on how great, much greater substance abuse and alcohol use is amongst people returning with PTSD? Well, the um it is certainly a uh, huge issue uh, coming back, and the issue of defining substance abuse is one of the ones that we're that I think we're all struggling with. I mean, this is an age group that has a tendency to have more use of substances, particularly alcohol, anyway. Mm-hmm. However, if you define 
substance use, for example, is, is binge using, uh, for example, binge alcohol use, there is probably a 30% greater um, binge drinking uh, um, evidence for um, these returning veterans, particularly men, than there is in you know a, a um, population that's matched for age and um, developmental age. So the it's certainly a very large issue, and as you're talking about treatment and as you're talking about all the other things that we've been chatting about, it puts in a number of variables that you really got to get a hold of. You know, if you're having this level of anxiety, and like we talked about, if you're caught between a rock and a hard place, you sometimes will be susceptible to using something that will somewhat uh, be mind-altering in that way. And alcohol is readily available, as you know, and um, uh, certainly smoking uh, cannabis uh, is also something that's not as readily available and certainly illegal, but certainly around. And and so there's a a tremendous amount of substance abuse and fully, like I was saying, approximately one-third of these veterans who are coming back um, with some of these issues um, we are act. We are defining and actively engaging. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the substances or alcohol can change people's state, but they can also relieve sleep and just make people sort of help with them with their anxiety. Um, they can also unleash a lot of impulsivity. Um, drugs and alcohol are often used um, to see, initially relieve some um, symptoms and then become part of the problem itself. And one group that I was particularly wondering about was um, people with injuries, physical injuries, um, who might be on opiates and having more complex issues around um, opiates for pain and loss of control of that. But can you say something about the level of injuries, including traumatic brain injuries, that you're seeing? Well, sure. Um, one of the, in addition to substance abuse and PTSD, one of the screens that we do for everybody is a traumatic brain injury. And I'm going to give you another uh, statistic in a percentage way again. I, I told you about 20% or so of PTSD. About 19% are um, screening positive for at least what we call mild TBI, like a concussion. And as you've probably seen on the news and, and in various uh, healthcare publications that uh, traumatic brain injury or TBI really become the signature injury just because of the technology of the warfare. And it's worth just uh, for a second talking about this because it's a whole new way of thinking. When these particular IEDs or explosions go off, they send a blast wave, a blast wave of air. And that air becomes very compressed and that air travels towards you at extremely fast rate, and it will hit you, first your body armor and your helmet, but it will penetrate through those, through your brain cavity, through all the parts that make our brain, you know, the, um, the bone structure, and then a the little bit of padding that's there, and then the brain structure itself, and then there's in the brain, as you know, some various um, fluid-filled areas, and that it's transmitted through all those. And we screen for the consequences of that. Uh, for example, have you been exposed to explosions? Yes. Have you, in that, did you ever lose consciousness? Yes or no? Uh, if yes, 
what were the consequences, how long were you out, what did they do, etc. And um, or if you did not lose consciousness, did you see stars? Were you dazed? And um, it is amazing to hear the stories because these are folks that the blast wave alone knocked them, you know, 15, 20 feet. And um, this is just the air. And you could imagine what that does to your tissue. Before they had really good body armor, and um, as um, explosives got more sophisticated, uh, prior to the catch-up of the body armor, I mean, this would cause uh, lung collapsing in a lot of soldiers. And so, uh, not so much in this conflict, but in previous conflicts. And so the body armor is caught up, and now the onus is try to catch up in the helmet technology to help prevent these, these blast waves. Right. I didn't think of that when I was thinking of traumatic brain injury. I thought of, you know, some object, but the sound wave acts in the same way. Yeah, actually, airwave, and believe it or not, and then the next level is other debris from the explosion itself. But some interesting, you know, it is very interesting because if you talk about mild TBI, which is like a concussion, you know, we don't, previous to this conflict, we didn't know a lot. In fact, most of our literature from TBI came from uh, the National Football League, believe it or not, and uh, head injuries and helmet technology from football players. It did not translate very well into uh, a war zone, and so they had to develop whole new ways of looking at this. But an interesting thing is that um, fully, um, if you break down that 19%, 4.9% have this kind of mild TBI with uh, somewhat of a loss of consciousness. Of that group, about 44% met criteria for PTSD. And so you end up trying to kind of look for both in those groups. If you hear someone's had a, had a blast exposure, you really look for both. The um, And the folks that didn't lose consciousness but just saw stars or were dazed, um, 27% or so met criteria for PTSD, so a little bit lesser extent. And the importance of TBI is that because it shows up much later, it shows up as irritability and photophobia and persistence of headaches, and it can often get missed and some of the other things that uh, folks have been treating, especially severe orthopedic injuries or other things that have happened uh, to um, some of these soldiers. The other parts, the um, functioning after a brain injury can often get missed, and so it is a um, source of extreme scrutiny now, both in the active military, Department of Defense, and the VA, to not miss any of those because a whole new approach needs to be taken in terms of uh, having much more frequent contacts, looking for those specific things I said, headaches, photophobia, and irritability, um, as well as some other things that fall into PTSD, sleep issues, uh, substance issues, etc. cetera. Um, so it's, it's, it can get complicated. Yeah. Let's turn a little bit to um, the kind of treatments that, you're, that are available. Sure. Um, and some of the issues available um, at some of the treatments available at the VA. Although, I do want to ask one question before we go there. You had asked just about, you had mentioned how um, returning veterans um, talk about this issue with their families, and we'd ended just before the break touching on um, how families would begin to talk about such horrific events or about events which everyone assumes, I think, that no one wants to talk about. So, should families be encouraged to talk about um, the events or the the 
the difficulties and the emotional difficulties um, in the field? Or what, what, what's your advice on that? Well, I, I think most families, let's go with the majority here, most spouses who are wives in this case want to be able to talk about it. They just don't know the mechanism by which to reach that level of facts and um, because they're so well guarded. And so in response to should they, um, most of us feel, and, and since they want to so much, I think there should be some um, effort toward doing that. Of course, the way to do that is to ask uh, the uh, returning soldier and, and now veteran, um, how can I ask this of you? How can I do this in a way that will not upset you? I mean, one of the questions that our veterans hate to get, and I hear it all the time, is that, you know, a cousin or a brother or someone come up to them and say, hey, did you kill somebody? Did you kill anybody? And they certainly do not want that level of question because most of them have done that. And it's, a, and it, it's I mean, to, to have engaged in that level of threat uh, is is pretty horrible experience. And these are... And I can tell you, PTSD or not, when that has occurred and you've listened to these folks, these are memories that they will always have, separate from PTSD, of course. So it is a tender area, and most veterans want to be able to explain to their spouse some of the things that have occurred to the extent that it won't have their spouses judge them and to the extent that it won't get them emotionally overwrought. Because you have to remember, a lot of these memories are walled off with extremely powerful emotions that need to be treaded on somewhat lightly. And so one of the ways in, and I do this myself, I say, well, how can I ask you of this? You tell me how you would like me to ask you about these things, and that's what I will do. I will follow your recipe uh, to uh, helping you with this. And that seems to be a way to try to uh, reach it. I, when I have a, a, a soldier coming back, I always ask, you got a girlfriend? Do you have, you know, are you married? Do you have kids? Bring them in. Bring your spouse in. Let's, let's just talk about this. Because I know... Try and, that's, try and involve the broader system and support network from the get-go. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's... Because it makes so much difference when you teach a spouse about PTSD, about what's going on, about the fact he's driving in the middle of the road, etc. It makes all the difference in the world. And the spouse will sometimes look at their husband and say, how come you didn't tell me that? And it's not for lack of any desire. It's that it, it just doesn't come out that easy. Yep. It's also a very collaborative approach. You're inviting people to tell you they might not know exactly the best way to, um, for you to help them, but they're entering into a dialogue with you, um, and they feel probably as if they're on a team. Absolutely correct. Very supported. Okay, we'll return shortly after the break. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh, uh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Oh, well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom <laughs> and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Oh, go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. Uh, shoot! Get away! Scream at them, dear hornets. Hey, high pitch noises. Yeah, uh, try not to swallow too many. Get away! Now, knock that nest out of the park. You wouldn't treat your child like an adult, so why put them in adult seat belts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. I can't see. Are they biting me? Oh, that's so cute. No, honey, hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. Ow! For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back, thanking me for my concerns, and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who will work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. So this is Mark, um, the uh, standing in for Mary. Dan, you were talking about treatments just mentioned the involvement of a support 
network and how you would begin to talk with families about and, and open up some communication. Um, do you have groups or specific family work going on? Or tell me about some of the specific things <clears throat> you do have. Well, we are, we, uh, I was mentioning off the air, we're a relatively smaller uh, VA hospital. We don't have our own separate inpatient unit. Um, we don't have a, a big support structure like a university hospital behind us. Um, and most of the larger VAs, and that, that's the usual, do have a pretty well-structured um, treatment program for post-traumatic stress disorder involving groups and involving um, very specific uh, pharmacologic approaches. We have those things, although we don't do it in groups. Everything is done individually here, although we're about to embark perhaps on a group model uh, at some point. But um, the two main foci, you know, the foci for treatment, you know, one is medicine or pharmacologic, and the other is very specific types of um, psychotherapies that we use, Mark, uh, in order to try to help out. And I'll probably talk a little bit about both in terms of that. Yeah, great. All right. Well, uh, first off, um, the medicines involved in PTSD. Uh, and uh, for the most part, the medicines are medicines that I would imagine that most of the listeners are familiar with in a way. These are all antidepressants. And it is a fascinating thing that antidepressants in of themselves can actually help in PTSD. Um, the medicines that we're talking about is their class of medicines called the uh, SSRIs, the Selective uh, Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. And those are medicines that we know by the names of um, Prozac and Paxil and Zoloft and Lexapro and, and Celexa. And those medicines, some which are FDA approved for PTSD and some are not, however, all show equal um, effort and help in uh, helping symptoms of PTSD. Mostly they are used to somewhat target decreasing the anxiety and decreasing the hypervigilance involved in this, which allows someone to, and if you, I'll reference what we talked about earlier, to go against the over-emotional reasoning survival skills to allow uh, decreased anxiety of growth, if you will, to get folks back to where they want to be. And a lot of our veterans will come back and say that that was the addition of that medicine that assisted them in starting to go against these older survival skills. Of course, it works better if you, when you interview folks, you say, look, we're going to determine what's going to be responsive to medicines and we're going to try to go for that. And what it looks like is this helping you going against this. And so what we'd like to do is try this while you continue to practice going against your emotional reasoning. And, uh, you know, let me know how it goes. Um, and so the pharmacology of this, for the most part, there's some fancier things that we sometimes do um, that if we have time we can get into later, but it's mostly th those are the mainstays in terms of medicine. Okay. The psychotherapy is, involves two main types of thing. There is some pretty good evidence to show that there's a type of psychotherapy called prolonged exposure. And what this is, is teaching someone who suffers from PTSD a number of very specific relaxation skills. 
and then at some point allowing them to be able to go through uh, their trauma in a way to be able to um, re-evaluate the leftover cognitions and um, be able to help them um, re-establish that middle path reasoning to allow them to feel a little bit better. Um, and um, the goal, I guess, is you're reliving a bit of this traumatic experience in somewhat of a controlled therapeutic environment, if you will. And it, the real internal goal is to relieve the physical and emotional distress felt in certain situations that are relived while you're remembering the trauma to allow it for the generalization of more cognitive or cool reasoning um, to push forth the generation of more productive kind of middle path reasoning and coping skills. So you're getting people calm enough with a combination of the SSRIs and the relaxation skills to be able to experience some exposure to a lower grade version of their traumatic experience um, and think it through differently to reassess and to exert some reason and feel like they've mastered that, got through it, and um, can hopefully generalize to the outside world and not be able to go under the bridge better. Exactly right. Okay. Yes, the overpass is a lot less scarier if you've been through some of these treatments and you don't have that automatic thought like, this could be something up there going to drop something on my car, on my vehicle. And uh, and the prolonged exposure, I, I, we spoke off air about some of some right. centers um, using virtual reality to in, to bring this on. But you're, will you use personalized stress scripts? You know, so you'll hear their story, or do you, you grade um, some of their more frightening episodes and just focus on some less intense ones? What, what do you do? Oh, that's a great question. It works best when you do it exactly the way you said it the first time. You have them have their own personal story either through writing it down or recording it, exactly what they remember, exactly what somewhat happened. And you'll get this from their personal account uh, over time. And you somewhat lay it out, and you begin to teach um, relaxation training, breathing training, um, uh, mindfulness training, which is a, a way of, um, it's a type of meditation. And then you have them slowly go through some aspects of the trauma and you are able to have greater mastery of the trauma, which has some really fascinating uh, results that um, will surprise you after uh, a few weeks or a month or so. Um, because a lot of these folks, part of the issue is that from their emotional reasoning before, they would have a lot more conclusions that are based on emotions like you like the bridge is uh, not safe etc and so it actually reduces the amount of emotional conclusions and allows someone to kind of get back to work and get back to their family etc well Dan it's been great talking with you unfortunately at the end of our show I'm Dan Tenta. Um so thanks so much for talking to us today well, thank you very much Mark 
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.